So what I'd like to talk about this evening was greatly inspired by um, what I heard today in the practice uh, discussions. Um, it's always amazing to me how here we all are, here we are practicing in the silence and we don't really know what's going on with each other, but there are these common threads that seem to weave through our experiences. And so in a way, we're, we're really all practicing together here, especially with all that I heard today. So I'd like to start with a story. Um, this was told to me uh, a number of years ago by a dear friend who... Um, even way before her telling me this story, had uh, suffered uh, a number of years of um, drug addiction. Uh, She was addicted to coke and anything she could get her hands on. And her family figured this out and sent her away to one of those outdoor wilderness uh, camps that sometimes troubled teens get sent to. And she hated it. She didn't want to be there. She went willing, willingly, but didn't really feel like she belonged. But over time, she spent a month in the wilderness through this therapy program. And over time, she began to realize uh, and get in touch with who she was again. She had somehow lost her way. And um, for the first time in a long time, was being reintroduced to herself. And that was a relief on one level and then terrifying on another level. And she told the story of how one night she was talking with her counselor and she tells it where she's surrounded by desert and um, I guess it was in high desert and there were um, uh, there was a roaring campfire between them and it's her and her therapist or wilderness guide and she's going on and on about how she's blown it. I think she was probably, I don't know, maybe 18 at the time, that she'd blown her life, that she'd ruined it, that she had gotten off track, that um, she'd lost her way and she kept saying as she was telling her story, I've lost my way, I've lost my path. I don't even know how to get back on. You know, I don't, you know, I'm relearning myself. I don't know where I fit, but I've, but I've messed up so badly. There's no way back. And her wilderness guide listened with a lot of compassion. And then after she had talked for some time, he leaned in and said, what if, All of this is part of your path. The addiction, uh, the self-hatred, the struggle, the refinding yourself, the being in the desert, and then whatever comes next. What if all of that is actually your path? What if there is no going off of your path? And this was profound for her. It completely changed her life. It changed the way she framed herself, which at the time she just felt like a failure. Uh, It allowed her to forgive herself. 
It allowed her to move forward, knowing that she hadn't completely blown it. You know, it's not uh, the teenage years she would probably hope for herself, but at the same time, it's what's made her stronger. It's what's made her now the woman that I know, the woman that she is. And she wouldn't change that. Now, I tell that story because I think that we can all relate to it in some way. I think in some way we come on retreat or we come to the practice to find ourselves again and to get back onto some track or to find the path to awakening or just a path to more happiness. And there's this feeling of needing to right ourselves, And that means that what was happening before was us wronging ourselves. That one was right and one is wrong. And it might be true that one way may have been very unskillful. And another way of life might be very skillful. One might lead to more suffering and the other might lead to liberation. But as a whole, you know, our difficulties and our challenges in life, they make us who we are. We don't have to reject them. It's not us losing our way necessarily, especially if we can see it with clarity now. And even in the context of a retreat, you know, we come to retreat we have some kind of expectation, maybe, when we, when, before we get here. Maybe it's the expectation that we're going to have some mind-blowing experience, um, maybe even awakening. We're here to wake up in this week. <laughs> we are hoping to cut through and get through something that we've been stuck in in our daily life, and we're here to... to to get through that, to be done with it. Uh, we come with uh, maybe not expectations for the retreat, but we come to a sitting with an expectation. Oh, that last sit was so wonderful. I, it's going to be great this time. I'm going to do exa- exactly the same thing that I did in the last sit. And we come with this expectation that it's going to be a certain way. And of course it's different. Of course it's different because life is always changing. Our experiences are always changing. But that expectation is so solid that we become disappointed or confused or self-judgmental in some way. We feel like we're off our path. We feel like a failure or like something's wrong with us. Something's not quite right. Why can't I just get this together? So much dukkha is created in that line of thinking. And so there's a way that we can uh, drop out of this, this mind that is so confused. Those thoughts are coming from a mind that is just, just confused and not seeing clearly. There's a way to drop down into more truth. And perhaps the truth is that it's all part of it. This is all part of our path. 
the difficulties, the struggles, the numbness, you know, coming in and really wanting to connect with all of our sincerity with our heart, and there's nothing. We feel like there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me. No, this is just part of it. This is part of the unfolding. We think maybe we know what awakening is. We don't. We think we have this idea of what an enlightened being must be like and look like and feel like. And we hold ourselves to some kind of expectation in that, in that light. And we, we, we don't. It's a mystery, really. We think we're in some kind of control over how this is all going to unfold. We're not. We are not in that much control. Sometimes I think that is the, the biggest frustration when we're here looking at all this stuff, is coming into the truth that we are not in that much control over all of this. We're, life isn't just happening to us. We're in life. We are making decisions. We are um, able to um, cultivate ourselves and cultivate for future wisdom and happiness too. But we are not in that much control as far as the unfolding of that and the unfolding of our awakening. We can't control what that awakening is going to look like. Some days that awakening is going to look numb. Or some days it's going to look uh, very emotional. Or some days it's going to be body pain. Some days it's going to be fear. Some days it's going to be exquisite happiness and peace. But we don't really get to choose any of that. But we can start to see that it's all part of this process of waking up. So when we're not in, when we're not aware of this process and how it it really works, we can easily, we can do a number of things. One of the things that um, I heard a lot today, and James mentioned either this morning or yesterday, (laughs) it's all blurred together, but um, this figuring out mind, this idea that, well, we're going to just figure this all out. And we actually, when we do this, often we leave the heart and the body, and we get way up here in our head. And we think we're going to just figure this all out. I was not the one who wrote the note that James read, but I could have been. (laughs) That was my mantra. You don't have to figure it out for a number of years given by James, because that was my habit. A really strong. I still do it. I still catch myself doing it. It's my, it's my comfort place. I'll just figure this out. And so for years, and I still hear James in my head <laughs> at times, Kate, you don't have to figure it out. And I'm so grateful to that. Because what I know now is that figuring out mind 
Uh, first of all, uh, it was a mind that was full of confusion, aversion for what was going on in the moment, um, uh, restlessness, just not really wanting to be what, what, with what was really there. It was a, a bit of a scapegoat. It was a way for me to kind of sit above what I was really feeling and what was really going on and be busy, keep myself busy so that I wouldn't have to feel it too much. But it felt productive. You know, in my mind, it felt like a good idea, seemed like the right thing to do. But it just caused more suffering. I could start to see over time through practice the spiral effect that it would create. So not only did the mantra, you don't have to figure it out, come in handy, but also uh, every now and then, especially when it just it was really strong, when the habit was really strong, I would ask myself, well, who? Who's trying to figure it out? Is it wisdom? Is it compassion? If I had to ask the question, then the answer was no <laughs> to those things. It was always delusion, greed, aversion. It was my doubt, my insecurity, my judgment, my aversion, all of it. It was not coming from wisdom. And so there's no way to figure it out coming from there, coming from that place. It seems so rational at the time when we're stuck in the tingle of that figure-it-out mind. But really, it gets us nowhere. But these habits of dukkha are so sticky. They're, they are that mud. I think uh, it was last night when I did the late night, 9 o'clock sit at the very end, I mentioned the lotus. And so some of you were there for that, but some of you weren't. So I'll tell it again. So in Buddhism, the, the lotus flower is um, often depicted as a symbol of the Buddha, as a symbol of wisdom, of the Dharma. And um, the lotus flower is this beautiful, um, beautiful flower that lives and lays upon uh, the water. And what we don't see because of the water is that its root goes down into the muck, into the mud. And it's usually um, a pretty mucky pond that these beautiful flowers <coughs> grow from. But it's that muck that actually nourishes and allows for that lotus to grow. Without the muck in the mud, there is no lotus. And so without this, this dukkha and really seeing the dukkha and being with it, not, not avoiding it, not staying up above it, but sinking down into it, getting comfortable in that mud, 
that the space for wisdom appears. We create this space and the wisdom comes from that. So this is, um, this is a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, who wrote a book called No Mud, No Lotus, The Art of Transforming Suffering. And this is what he has to say about it. He says, it is possible, of course, to get stuck in the mud of life. It's easy enough to notice mud all over you at times. The hardest thing to practice is not allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by despair. When you're overwhelmed by despair, all you can see is suffering everywhere you look. Isn't that true? When we're just so stuck in the mud, our view of everything comes through that lens and everything feels like suffering. You feel as if the worst thing is happening to you, but we must remember that suffering is a kind of mud that we need in order to generate joy and happiness. Without suffering, there's no happiness. So we shouldn't discriminate against the mud. We have to learn how to embrace and cradle our own suffering and the suffering of the world with a lot of tenderness. And this is the, the Tibetan teacher, Pema Chodron. Feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us that terrifying clarity, that with terrifying clarity, exactly where we're stuck, this very moment is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. So this word dukkha that I keep using, uh, I believe I've, I already uh, said in my past talk, is the Pali word for suffering. It's often translated as suffering. Um, it's actually a really hard word to translate in English. Um, the English language is really limited when it comes to dharma. And so sometimes it's translated as suffering. Sometimes it's translated as unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes it's been translated as stress. So there's these different layers and levels of dukkha. I like, uh, I like the idea of dukkha being this friction in our life. That when the dukkha isn't there... We're, we're in the flow, we're in the flux, without being disturbed by it. We're part of what's happening in the moment rather than coming up against it. The dukkha is us coming up against what's happening in this moment. We either don't want it, and we're rejecting it, or it's not enough, 
we want more, or we really enjoy it, but we're not going to let it go. We want it to stay just as it is. These are the different forms it can take. Dukkha is like a tangle in our mind. The way that it um, shows itself is often this tangle of many different things. It's different memories, um, our perception, sensations, our understanding at the time. All of it then, that tangle then can be brought down to its roots, which will uh, classically be rooted in greed, ill will, and delusion. And that those three poisons in the mind, as it said, are what feed uh, this tangle of dukkha. And the tangle sometimes is what confuses us. It's not clear what we're looking at. We know it's dukkha, but what exactly is that? And so in this practice, part of what we're doing when we rest down into the moment is we start to untangle. We start to untangle the dukkha and see it clearly. And as the tangle becomes smaller and smaller and we start to clearly see its roots and not be fooled by, by these delusions, this ill will and this greed, which all is fueled by our not understanding how things really are. The more we we free ourselves from this tangle, we free our mind and our heart. And we do this with our mindfulness. Uh, We do this with a mind that is not only mindful, but steady. And we do it with an attitude of metta. So the two come together in this practice. When we mature this practice and we're really staying with whatever is arising, one of the things that becomes really clear is that the mindfulness practice and the heart practices are the same thing. That they work hand in hand. Now, on retreat, we cultivate them separately, in a way. Hopefully, you're seeing the threads, the common threads, as we we teach the two. You know, you get your mindfulness instruction in the morning, and then you get your heart instruction in the afternoon. And so it it seems really separate. And there can be a lot of wisdom in cultivating them separately. You know, it's like different muscles in the body. We're we're working out this arm, and then we're going to work out this arm. But ultimately, you want to be able to use both together to get something done. And so our mindfulness and our metta, they work together in this way. As we strengthen them, they naturally come together. So I want to say a little bit about um, metta, but also what metta is part of the Buddhist structure of the heart practices Uh, They're called the Brahma-viharas. These are the divine abodes, the Brahma-viharas. These are the divine attitudes 
of the heart and mind. And so these are the attitudes that we want to have as we develop our mindfulness. And so metta is this baseline attitude. I think of it as this baseline friendliness. It is the natural way we meet the moment and meet whatever arises when our heart is open, when it's available. We don't have to try to do it. It's this baseline friendliness. It's a friendliness towards whatever is arising. It doesn't care if it's pleasant or unpleasant, but it meets it like a friend. So here's this, uh, a poem by Rumi. Many of you will be familiar with it. It's called The Guest House. That really illustrates this idea. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So it illustrates this ability to meet whatever is here with this open hand of of presence, of friendliness. It doesn't mean they get to take over. It just means that we're available to be there with them. There are many stories in the suttas where um, this uh, creature character Mara appears to the Buddha and the Buddha's uh, followers. And Mara is this archetype figure of our um, confused, deluded, uh, malicious mind. And it's always trying to trick the Buddha and his people. And uh, classically, he'll come in and say something like, you're not as good as you think you are. Or, you know, who do you think you are? Uh, And the Buddha will be able to see Mara there, and he says, ah, I see you, Mara. And then Mara either disappears in a puff of smoke, or goes, ah, and turns around and walks out. And so we can treat our maras in this way, of this this awareness, this presence, this clarity, but also this friendliness. It's not, get out of here, Mara. It's, I see you, Mara. I see you there. Hi, my good old friend. It's just a different way of relating. It sounds soft, right? It seems like we should be harsher. It seems like we need to be tougher than that. But actually, the harsher we are to our harshness, the more malice we feed, the tighter we become. Uh, We become it. 
Sometimes this practice, uh, when we're talking about this deep rest and relaxing, this playful curiosity, this kindness, this friendliness, it sounds soft. Like, that can't be it. When we think about, um, maybe we have an image of a monk stoic sitting at the top of a mountain or in a cave, full lotus, and just, you know, cutting through all that dukkha. We have this idea of, of that being maybe a harsh pro- process that our mind has to be um, like a sword of destruction. And actually, there are times in the suttas where it's depicted in that way. But I find that you have to be able to come to that point first with this level of clarity and rest, this assuredness, this confidence, this quietness, kindness. That all actually needs to be in place first to be able to cut through So it seems like a soft practice. It doesn't seem, um, it's not necessarily intuitive. It seems like we're not really doing very much. But we're doing so much, actually. This is the process of awakening. This approach is the process of awakening. It's what supports it. The softness is part of the path. The resting in, leaning back, is part of this awakening process. It's not weak. It's incredibly strong and courageous to approach our dukkha in this way. In fact, if our dukkha had its way, we'd be you know, tooth and nail, attacking it, building it, allowing it to be stronger as we get more aggressive and annoyed and frustrated and uh, doubtful and self-judgmental. You know, we know how to do that. (laughs) We're all doing that very well. This is something else. This is a different approach. We're turning towards it in a very different way that is very powerful. So we have this baseline of metta, this natural way of responding to what's here in front of us in our experience when the heart is open, this friendliness. And then the dukkha gets really hard, and there's real suffering happening. Now, from there, that metta, when the heart is open and matured, it naturally turns into compassion and can hold that suffering with that empathetic, connected, balanced uh, heart of this is hard, I care. May I hold you with compassion. May your pain and struggle be at ease. May you be at peace. It naturally goes there. And we see that when we are in touch with someone we really care about who's struggling. 
and they're sharing their story with us. And our heart just goes into compassion. I care about your suffering. You know, it's harder when it's ourself. We've talked about that. But that's the idea that as we cultivate in these ways, that there's this naturalness that develops. So even if it feels dry and closed off and numb right now, in terms of responding to the suffering with compassion, don't misunderstand that for it not working, that you're not doing it right, or that uh, there's no compassion there, that you're all dried up. It works in such mysterious ways. All you have to do is keep showing up. Keep showing up with your intention to open your heart. Keep showing up uh, with your practice. We are not in charge. We are not in control of the heart's opening. You're doing, you're doing the work just in that, showing up. And it does begin to open. It begins to incline towards this compassionate, easy, compassionate heart. And then there's the other side of it, of joy, sympathetic joy, mudita. The heart sees somebody else's gladness, somebody else's success, um, someone else's happiness, and it opens towards happiness for their happiness. We become happy by seeing other people be happy. There's no jealousy. Uh, there's no wanting it for ourselves because we actually are experiencing it. We're right there with them and getting a hit off of it and enjoying and, uh, and joining in with their happiness. This is the natural Um, unfolding with a heart that's open and matured. And so we get to experience great happiness because we're so open to it. So that you can see the balance there. There's a whole set of practices for mudita. We have whole retreats here, actually, just on the Brahma Viharas, where you cultivate each one. Each one can individually be cultivated and strengthened. And then it does... It it starts to flow. It starts to open. And then balancing all this, so if you imagine you've got um, metta as your foundation, uh, sympathetic joy and compassion as your walls, and then your roof that keeps it all together and in balance is equanimity. (coughs) Equanimity is a heart practice. It's a little bit more subdued or cool than the other heart practices or the other um, attitudes in the heart. But it's very much a heart practice. It comes from here. It keeps things balanced. It keeps us from going into overwhelm. When we go into overwhelm, it's because our equanimity hasn't been strengthened enough or it's needing some attention. When we are... Um, unable to move from mudita to compassion to metta. Sometimes that means that our equanimity is needing some, some attention too. So these are the four chambers of the heart. 
These are the divine abodes, the divine attitudes that we can uh, bring to our practice. So our mindfulness becomes not this dry, analytical, uh, cognitive practice as much as uh, this presence that's imbued with the warmth of the heart. There's something really alive about that. When I hear James talk about whatever it is that he's talking about, (laughs) you can see that. He kind of... Um, he embodies that, that there's this aliveness to whatever it is that he's paying attention to or talking about. And that aliveness, I think, is partly uh, just that flow of the Brahma Viharas coming in touch with, um, with mindfulness, coming together like that. So I'll share a story with you. Um, this, when I was thinking about, about this, this connecting the heart and mind and what that really means in its depths and how that's really shown in my own practice, uh, it made me think about uh, the times, the many times since I started my practice that I found myself in grief. I actually came to this practice because of deep grief and loss. A lot of us come to this practice for reasons like that. It's out of our dukkha that we go searching. Not all of us, but a lot of us. So I'm one of those people. And even after I started the practice, I found that I went through a series of losses. Uh, Losses of, of... family, friends, um, major upheaval in occupation and job, um, loss in, in certain aspects of my identity. Um, uh, you know, as, as my, my roles began to shift, I went from a single young person to uh, mom and... Uh, a Dharma teacher and having to kind of reorient to that and actually going through a grieving process with what I didn't have anymore and the fear of what was to come. And so as I think back of through the years, the different times where I went through those grieving processes, I think about how in the beginning or before the practice, it was so overwhelming the grief would come in and I would go into a depression or I would be overwhelmed. Um, You know, just what you would expect from grief. Uh, As I got into the practice, I had a way finally to meet it, but it was really hard. It was really challenging. Um, Just being able to stay there took everything I had. And then it would move through and change, and I would see that. And I'd gain confidence from that and understanding. And then the next opportunity, (laughs) unwanted opportunity, would arrive, and I would recognize it. Oh, I know this. 
this is actually quite familiar and I'd be a little more skilled and a little more skilled and so each time it would come it would be a little bit different. Uh, I'd be able to um, better understand how to bring these Brahma Viharas and the mindfulness practice together to support in, in being with it and working with it. And then in more recent years, I went through another loss uh, and, and um, some deep grieving. And I found that for the first time, I, wasn't, I didn't have to fight it. There wasn't this so much. The, the pain was there. The dukkha was there. But I didn't have to feed it. I didn't have to feed that dukkha. I could just be with it and in a way nourish it, which sounds crazy. <laughs> like, why would you want to nourish that? But it, actually, it was from that place of really caring for it and loving it and allowing it to be there as much as I could, this sense of laying back into it. You know, Pema Chodron talks about leaning in, and I think that sometimes I've experienced it in that way, but with grief, it was, it was more of a leaning back into it and just being with it in a brand new way. And uh, the process of grief Though it was uncomfortable and um, really unpleasant at times, it, it just continued to move through. It just moved through. It was just another phenomenon of life that I was experiencing, I was seeing, meeting it with metta and allowing it to move on. And as grief is, um, you know, it, it, it goes and then... Uh, you know, we all experience it again. I don't, I expect to experience it someday in the future, most likely. But it doesn't have to be something filled with um, unnecessary fear or unnecessary turmoil. So I share that not as a pat on, on the back for me, but more as just to point to the possibility of what happens when these practices are brought together and strengthened that they are, are, they are deep supports for our awakening. And not only that, but these parts of ourselves that we're so afraid to see or acknowledge or um, um, become friendly with are really part of this path. I can't say that enough. So we come with these ideas about what awakening is. The Buddha said that he teaches about suffering and the end of suffering. And I think there's just a period at the end of that. That's what I teach. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. These practices are... Uh, practices to to carry us on to the end of suffering, to ultimate freedom, 
Not just a little more happiness, but freedom. I truly believe that is possible. I truly do. Many of us do. Those of us teaching it do. It's why we love to teach. It's why the Buddha taught. He realized finally that what he had learned, uh, there were those with, as he put it, just a little bit of dust in their eyes and could understand it too and cultivate their own freedom. So we can hold this as our uh, as our true north. We can uh, have a wholesome desire for this awakening. The word in Pali for wholesome desire is chanda. Chanda is this wholesome desire to be free, to eliminate the dukkha in our lives. This is a wholesome thing. So we can hold that as our our guiding light, but we also don't want to miss the moments of awakening that we can experience in any moment. And you have had them here. Those moments of clarity, those moments where the heart just opens a little bit more, more than you thought was cap- that it was capable. Those moments when you're finally able to stay with what it was that was so difficult and you find yourself really being there for that sitting with it or in for an extra few minutes than you thought you could. These are moments of freedom. They might not be the ultimate uh, freedom. They might not be the ultimate enlightenment with a capital E. But we don't want to miss them because they matter. They're really important. They're inspiring. They give us the courage and the confidence that we need to keep going on this path. They're no little thing. I'll read to you one more poem. This is by Donna Falds, uh, Awakening Now. Did you read this already? Mm-hmm. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> okay. Why wait for your awakening? Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true nature. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your story, in your stories of deficiency and failure. This is the day of your awakening. So we can really choose any moment that we find ourselves in. 
we can choose to be part of it or not part of it. When we choose to be part of it, there's an opening, there's a chance for this awakening, for this clarity, for this opening of the heart, for the two to come together. When we choose to be part of it, we're choosing our freedom. We're choosing our happiness. We're choosing to be fully human and to be alive in the way that we we wish to be truly. We're choosing connection with ourself, but even beyond that, feeling the connection of who we are in the space of everything. And sometimes it feels that way. We can feel that deep connection and that wholeness. And sometimes choosing to be in this moment is the mud. But even still, even in that mud, we're choosing our freedom. We just have to open our eyes to it and open our heart to that truth. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.